I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 1, Session 3, Elements of Shakespeare's Mastery, Concluded. In this session, I'll be introducing the last three elements of Shakespeare's mastery, sound and sense, action, and universal realism. Shakespeare has a great genius for harmonizing sound and sense. That means making the sounds of words reflect, or rather become, the meaning of the line in which they are being said. I'm going to give you three of my favorite examples. The first two happen both to use the letter S, though in different ways. One comes from the sonnets and one from Macbeth. But first, a caution. Except for onomatopoeia, that is, using words that sound like what they mean, for example, buzz, the meaning of the sounds of words depends on the context. Except in words and sentences, the sounds of letters don't have specific meanings. For example, the sound of S means totally different things in the words hiss, bliss, fuss, and gas. The American poet J.V. Cunningham once cautioned us that the glory that was Greece, capital G-R-E-E-C-E, has a totally different effect if we spell it the glory that was G-R-E-A-S-E. When we talk about Shakespeare's meaningful use of sounds, we're always talking about the relation of sounds to the meanings of the words and phrases in which they appear. Here's my first example. In Macbeth, at Act 1, Scene 5, Lines 63 to 70, when Lady Macbeth is persuading her husband to kill the good King Duncan, she says, To beguile the time, look like the time. Bear welcome in your eye, your hand, your tongue. Look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. He that's coming must be provided for, and you shall put this night's great business into my dispatch, which shall, to all our nights and days to come, give solely sovereign sway and masterdom. Notice first the meanings of the words in the last line, solely sovereign sway and masterdom. They all imply that she wants herself and her husband to have absolute power and control, solely, sovereign, sway, meaning control or rule, and masterdom. Next, notice that all these words have S's in them. Because of this, in saying these words, Lady Macbeth begins to sound as if she is hissing. And we are meant to feel her line as hissing, rather than, say, deflating and melting like the wicked witch in The Wizard of Oz, or smoldering like the glowing fire in the next example, because Shakespeare has already planted the idea of a serpent into our minds four lines above. Look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. And serpents traditionally hiss. But there's more. Which is the serpent best known to Shakespeare's audience? Satan, who takes the form of a serpent in the Garden of Eden, and what was he doing there? Tempting Eve and Adam to disobey God, just as Lady Macbeth is tempting Macbeth to disobey God by killing the king. 
And what was it that Satan ultimately wanted that made him evil? He wanted to be God, just as Lady Macbeth and Macbeth want to be queen and king. That is, he wanted solely sovereign sway and masterdom. Do you see how through these words and their S's, Shakespeare associates Lady Macbeth with the satanically tempting serpent not only to our minds, but to our ears? The words and their sounds join in our empathic response to become a single unified experience of meaning. I'll read it once more. To beguile the time, look like the time. Bear welcome in your eye, your hand, your tongue. Look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. He that's coming must be provided for, and you shall put this night's great business into my dispatch, which shall to all our nights and days to come give solely sovereign sway and masterdom. My second example is in line 8 of Sonnet 73. It reads, Death's second self that seals up all in rest. The poem is about the feelings involved in the awareness of approaching endings, especially the ending of life. In the previous line, night, death's second self, encloses into sleep everything that was awake during the day. But notice how many times the letter S is used in this line. That sibilant sound keeps going through the line until the T in the word rest puts an end to it. So the concept of day ending in night and awareness ending in sleep is carried like a soul in a body within the sound of six S's ending in a T. Sst. This is also tied to the hissing sound of the dying fire in the next quatrain of the sonnet. By Shakespeare's artistry, our empathic response to the sounds and our empathic response to the meaning become one. And that's the point. That's part of what makes it stick and gives us the thrill. In example three, we will look not at consonants, but at the sound structure of the lines. In King Lear, Act One, Scene One, the good King of France, finding that England's King Lear has angrily and foolishly banished his youngest daughter Cordelia with no dowry, announces his intention to marry the girl anyway. This is Act 1, Scene 1, lines 254 to 261. God's gods, tis strange that from their cult's neglect my love should kindle to inflamed respect. Thy dowerless daughter, king, thrown to my chance, is queen of us, of ours, and our fair France. Not all the dukes of waterish burgundy can buy this unprized precious maid of me. Bid them farewell, Cordelia, though unkind. Thou losest here a better where to find. He speaks this speech in rhymed couplets, pairs of rhyming lines, suggesting formality, orderliness, coherence of purpose. His announcing his betrothal to the rejected daughter of a king, and publicly making her by his words the Queen of France. Now, here is King Lear's response, his first sentence directed to the King of France, his second to Cordelia. 
Thou hast her, France. Let her be thine, for we have no such daughter, nor shall ever see that face of hers again. Therefore be gone without our grace, our love, our benison. What has happened to the mood? It sounds as if Lear's anger has banished the orderliness of rhymed couplets. The pauses come in the middles of lines, not at the ends, as in France's speech. Technically, Lear's speech is enjammed instead of end-stopped. I will be discussing enjambment later on under rhetorical devices in Chapter 4. But now listen again. I'll read it a bit differently. Thou hast her, France. Let her be thine, for we have no such daughter, nor shall ever see that face of hers again. Therefore be gone, without our grace, our love, our benison. The rhymed couplets are still there, though they seem to have been battered at by chaos. What has actually happened is that in these last four lines, Shakespeare has given us rhymed couplets at war with themselves. Externally and formally, the rhymes are there, but they do not convey the balanced harmony that the rhymed couplets of the King of France convey. The movement from France's calm, orderly phrases to Lear's wild ones feels like order collapsing into chaos, which is exactly what is happening within the mind of King Lear. Though externally he is a king, formally giving his daughter in marriage to a king, Internally, he is in a foolish, egotistical rage, and the disorder within order of the lines conveys that. Sound and sense are one. The next element of Shakespeare's mastery is action. Shakespeare is able to weave action into his web of meaning as if it were a language in itself. Not only sword fights, murders, suicides, and other violence, but subtle actions, too, pack a dramatic punch in Shakespeare. In As You Like It, there is a character whose name is spelled Jacques and pronounced either Jaques or Jacus, and sometimes Jakes. His famous speech on the seven ages of man, beginning all the world's a stage, ends with a melancholy image. The lines are in Act 2, Scene 7, lines 163 to 166. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. It is an ending fitting the melancholy Jacobs. Sans means without in French, so without teeth, without eyes, without taste, without everything. But though it is the final word in Jacob's story of life, it is not the play's final statement, for the next thing that happens is that the young hero Orlando enters carrying his old servant, Adam. We know this because after the stage direction, Enter Orlando with Adam, the Duke says, Welcome, set down your venerable burden and let him feed. That's line 167. The physical action refutes the despairing melancholy of Jacob's verbal conclusion. That the loyal servant Adam is carried in by his virtuous young master demonstrates that where there is love, an old man, even at the point of death, is not sans everything. For other examples of action, 
conveying layers of meaning, study the scene in King Lear when Gloucester tries to jump off what he thinks is a cliff, Act 4, Scene 6, or the statue scene in The Winter's Tale, Act 5, Scene 3. In combination with speech, action in Shakespeare becomes eloquent language. The last element of Shakespeare's mastery that I will discuss in this session is what I call universal realism. Shakespeare's plays represent a remarkable union of two modes of drama. For convenience, we can call the first mode realism and the second allegory. Shakespeare has found a way to make completely believable particulars convey completely meaningful ideas. The effect is that the audience experience his characters, actions, situations, and speeches as real and believable, and at the same time, universally significant. Most writers who are good at one of these modes of drama are less effective at the other. Shakespeare is great at both, and at both at the same time. In achieving this marriage of naturalistic realism and abstract allegory, he comes as close to imitating life truly seen as any artist we can name. In an essay called Variation in Shakespeare and Others, C.S. Lewis puts this unique Shakespearean combination as follows. Shakespeare has combined two species of excellence which are not in a remarkable degree combined by any other artist, namely the imaginative splendor of the highest type of lyric and the realistic presentation of human life and character. The literary critic Northrop Fry, in his Anatomy of Criticism, calls this Shakespearean combination the high mimetic mode, and in his preface to the Fairy Queen, the literary critic Graham Huff calls it incarnational. Shakespeare achieves this combination, as C.S. Lewis argues, partly through the use of the technique of variation which I will discuss later in Chapter 4 on Shakespeare's language. Another way of looking at this combination is to think about Shakespeare's position in the history of drama. Briefly, the history of European drama from medieval times to the present is generally, with exceptions of course, a movement from the more allegorical forms of depicting reality, mystery, miracle, and morality plays, to more realistic modes, what we call slice-of-life realism, which is common in modern plays and films and TV drama. The drama of the modern age began in the churches with stories that everyone knew and that applied to everyone. Bible stories, like those about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Noah's flood, and the birth of Jesus. Stories about the lives of saints, morality tales like every man, a play about the fact that every human being dies and goes to judgment. In that allegorical play, characters have the names of abstract concepts, like knowledge, good deeds, and death. And the main character, every man, is neither short nor tall, fat nor thin, unusually good nor unusually bad. He has no particular qualities at all, except that of being a mortal man. Therefore, he stands for all of us. Now, fast forward to the present day and think of the movies and TV shows you've watched. The vast majority of them are about specific people with specific names and ages 
and in specific places and situations. They even drink specific drinks. The Coca-Cola Bottling Company, for example, pays a lot of money to get the hero of the latest popular film to be seen drinking a Coke instead of a Pepsi. We tend to take far more seriously a movie or TV show that might begin, for example, with a boy named Joe Morgan driving along Chicago's Outer Drive in his father's silver Honda and talking on a cell phone to a girlfriend named Cindy than one that begins, once upon a time there was a boy who lived in a big city. Shakespeare's ancestors went for the more abstract or allegorical. We go for the more particular or realistic. But Shakespeare came right in the middle of the historical movement from the one mode toward the other, and he and his audience went for both together. A list of styles of drama as they developed through time, from the earlier abstract allegorical modes toward the later particular realistic modes, might go like this. Earliest church liturgy, then mystery plays, Bible stories, morality plays, like every man, miracle plays, like the lives of the saints, early Renaissance histories, tragedies, and comedies, then Shakespeare. And following Shakespeare, restoration comedies and 18th century satires and tragedies, 19th century melodrama, 20th to 21st century drama, film, and TV, docudramas, news and documentaries, right down to reality TV and, even more realistic in particular, live video and webcams. The causes of this movement from the abstract toward the particular are complex and mysterious, having to do with the ways in which human civilization and its styles develop. And this movement is partly influenced by Shakespeare's work itself. What is important here is to see that Shakespeare comes at the center or pivot point of this historical development. Both in terms of his place in the history of drama and in terms of the qualities of his plays themselves, the union of modes we've been talking about, realistic particulars and universal significance, is the essence of Shakespeare's drama. One play where this combination of modes is easily visible is Othello. But before we look at that play, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen the old Disney cartoons in which Donald Duck has to make a decision and two mini versions of Donald Duck appear on his shoulders? The one on the left is red with a pitchfork and a long pointed tail and horns. The one on the right is white and he's wearing a halo and carrying a small harp. The devil Donald would try to persuade Donald Duck to be bad, and the angel Donald would try to persuade him to be good. This is a modern version of a medieval allegorical device called the psychomachia, or war within the psyche. Psyche means soul, and make means fight. In a psychomachia, a good angel and an evil angel, or perhaps two figures representing opposing qualities like courage and fear, or wisdom and folly, stand on the shoulders of a man and debate. Each is trying to persuade the man's free will, and they are trying to pull him in opposite directions. This allegorical debate exists as a way of representing 
a moral conflict within the mind. In Othello, Shakespeare has portrayed a psychomachia. Othello is every man who is caught between trusting a good angel and trusting a lying devil. But here's the magic of Shakespeare. The everyman whose mind is the arena of this terrible choice is, at the same time, a particular man. He is a general named Othello. He is a great and heroic fighter with royal ancestors and a noble bearing. He is a new convert to Christianity. He is what Shakespeare called a blackamoor, that is, a Central African with dark skin. His past life includes very specific experiences, and so on. The good angel, the incarnation of loving patience, is at the same time a particular white Venetian lady named Desdemona, daughter of a senator, virtuous, loving, a bit naive, and Othello's faithful wife. And the devil, an incarnation of jealousy itself, is at the same time a particular white Venetian soldier, 28 years old, named Iago, who is a lying villain plotting to destroy his master. The magic lies in the fact that we experience these two kinds of beings, the abstract, angel, devil, everyman, and the particular, Desdemona, Iago, Othello, at once in the same words and situations. It is important here to notice that they are not sometimes people and sometimes abstractions. They are both individual particular people and abstract figures at every point. The result of this Shakespearean magic is that we experience the play as both completely meaningful and completely believable, both universally significant and convincingly real. Here is one more example. Sir John Falstaff in Henry IV, Part I, is a hilariously witty, self-indulgent, old, fat man whose rank as a knight is entirely at odds with his character. He is devoted to his own comfort and pleasure, eating, drinking, sleeping, thieving, whoring, and joking around, and has lots of fun pretending to be virtuous and brave when he definitely isn't, providing us some of the best laughs in the history of drama. He is one of Shakespeare's most completely convincing achievements in realism. We know Falstaff perfectly and would never mistake him for anyone else in all fiction or reality. At the same time, in the context of the play, Falstaff also represents that part in every human being that is attached to the pleasures of the body and the selfish ego, the part that would be perfectly happy to see truth, loyalty, and honor tossed away in favor of fun and pleasure. To our utter delight, Falstaff is both his own utterly believable self and an incarnation of, in Renaissance physiological terms, the sanguine complexion that is fat, jolly, and red-faced like Santa Claus, in Plato's terms, the vegetable soul, and in Christian terms, complete worldliness. Banish plump Jack, he says of himself, and banish all the world. That's in Act 2, Scene 4, lines 479 to 480. Recognition of this universal realism, this both-in-oneness, realistic particulars united with abstract universals, reveals Shakespeare at his greatest. 
it is one of the most valuable keys to unlocking the wonders of Shakespeare's drama. So, to sum up about the greatness of Shakespeare, the central purpose of these podcasts is to enable you to access the great experiences of meaning that Shakespeare provides us through the medium of his works. Those meanings cannot be stated in sentences that try to state the meaning of the play. They can, however, be found if you let Shakespeare guide you to each play's center. All that is needed is a willingness to study the author's language and to become familiar with the author's assumption, to adopt them for a little while as you read or see his work. If you do so, you will come to the center of each play and there find its meaning for yourself. These podcasts are intended to give you the tools to help you do that. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.